Hi, we're back. We're back with issue two. Um, this issue is called Messy. Ooh. Ooh la la. <laughs> um, so we've been kind of talking about what messy is, and you're going to hear lots of great pieces from some of our favorite friends. Yeah. And some new friends. And some new friends. Um, but really exploring this idea of like being in a, not just physically messy and not just making a mess, but like making a mess of situations in our lives. Um, yeah. So yeah. What was the, what do you, this is Um, when I think of the word messy, what do I think of? Um, I would, I think what first pops into my head when I think of messy is me, like, post-graduation from college. That was a messy time for us. Oh, so messy. It was, um... Maybe messy for everyone. It was. Like, I think when you graduate from college, you just either dive in or you feel really displaced, and I think our lovely group of friends was super displaced by yeah. the situation. But no one was messier than me. I really take the cake. That's definitely true. <laughs> so, I mean, it was graduation, but also I had gotten super dumped, like majorly dumped, like, like day before graduation. Yeah, that was that was rough. Um, That was kind of like the start of our friendship because you called me on the phone. <laughs> at like 7 in the morning. At 7 in the morning. Oh, we were supposed to meet up with your partner at the at time, the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and go to, we went to Columbia College and we were supposed to go to this thing called Manifest. Like a big end of the year celebration. Um, and <laughs> you called me at seven in the morning and I answered because I answer for most people at any time. I like don't get a lot of phone calls, honestly, <laughs> except for my mom. Uh <laughs> I don't, like, who uses the phone? I like phone calls, but um, people don't call me that often. But I did. Uh, in case of emergency, people call me, so I always answer. Um, but you called me at 7 in the morning. Bawling. Bawling your eyes out. Straight um, up bawling. Yeah. And, and then you, like, you, like, swooped into my aid. Like, you were there with me, like, yeah. for the rest of the day and kind of forever after. Yeah, uh... I like, it sounds really bad, but I, I feel like I do really well with people uh, in a bad state, in a sort of messy sort of life. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that kind of stuff because that's when I'm useful. And you always talk about that, like, when we were first starting to become really good friends as, like, such a happy memory for you, which is lovely because it was, but was, also I was unreal sad. You were, you were so, so sad, and I was like, <laughs> I can do, I feel so productive, I can just get things right, get her on track, um, help her feel better. Uh, I was a great summer for me, honestly, <laughs> uh, just... Got to eat Italian ice, uh, hang out oh, with a new friend. We ate a lot of Italian ice. Uh, there was the time where my ex had to come and give me all of the leggings they had borrowed, all of my clothing that they had, and I just bawled and bawled and, like, weirdly, like, held the clothing. Yeah. And you were like, put it down. You're not allowed to smell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't smell those leggings. Um, oh. <laughs> um, and I remember you would... 
you would tell me about all of your moody walks on the beach. Mm-hmm. Like, you would walk, not a, yeah, like, on the lakefront. You would take these hour-long walks. And just cry the whole time. Uh, men call me a lot of the time. Yeah. I was, no one was with you on these walks, usually. Um, and you would just be walking and crying. <laughs> and talking to me for a lot of the time. Yeah. Sometimes um, I would sing to myself. Oh, gosh. <laughs> now that is messy. It's messy, <laughs> honestly. But looking um, back on it, how great that it happened because it because brought us together. It brought us so close together. <laughs> Way closer um, than we ever could have been. Yeah. Without well, it. So, yeah. Sometimes good things come out of messy situations. I would say so. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So with that, we'll take you into our first piece, which is uh, written by the beautiful Jennifer Keel, uh, my best friend, and her piece is called Tapioca. I don't remember exactly how old I am in this memory. I think I'm somewhere between 8 and 10, but I can't really pinpoint it in my mind. I know we had remodeled our kitchen that year or the year before, so everything is pretty new, but earlier that year I tried to make instant tapioca in the microwave and had burnt a hole in our new glass stovetop, which left it with a permanent dip the shape of a Tostito scoop between the back two burners, but closer to the left one. Tostito scoops didn't exist back then. I remember my mom was furious at me, and my dad was mad too, but he said it was okay because I started crying. I told him I was trying to make the tapioca for him because I knew it was his favorite dessert. It went horrible. The tapioca was too hot and I didn't wipe it up fast enough and it burnt that hole. A few weeks later, my dad said that whenever he saw it, he thought about how I tried to make him his favorite dessert and that made him happy. Whenever I'd stare at the dip, I'd think about tapioca and how good I felt about making the tapioca and doing something nice for someone and how bad I felt when it went wrong and how good I felt when my dad said that to me. The kitchen is in between the living room and the family room and my room that I share with my sister is behind it. I imagine the stairs are to my left even though those weren't there when this happened. Someone is in the family room. I think it's my mom. I sit on the cold tan tile and I stare at the two clocks, one on the stove with the tapioca burn and the other on the microwave above. I sit there and I stare. I'm still wearing my purple Leo that's velvet on the top and shimmery spandex on the bottom, and I've got tan trunks on underneath and bike shorts over. I remember myself wearing my Raisin Fest t-shirt that was really simple on the front and just said Raisin Fest on the left side, but then had a really huge colorful cartoon depiction of a dancing raisin on the back. But I know that's not possible because I hadn't done that meet yet. I think I only imagined myself wearing it because that was my favorite shirt for a while. I remember that I was in a good mood because I got to finish on Beam that day, and Beam is my favorite. I remember that I had a special pink and yellow water bottle that I was convinced tasted like chocolate milk if I refilled it at the tall water fountain at my gym, and I filled it up before I left even though my mom wanted to leave, and it was sitting to my right. I sit on the cold tan tile and I stare at the two clocks, one on the stove with the tapioca burn and the other on the microwave above. I sit there and I stare. I stare and I watch as the clock on the stove changes first and then a few seconds later the clock on the microwave meets it. The colon in between each blinks at different times and I fall into a pattern, a rhythm, and I start counting. 
one one two 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 I don't know what it is, but it feels good. It's comforting. I sit there, I stare, I count. It feels good. It feels good until it doesn't. It feels good until it doesn't, and then it feels like I can't stop. Like I'm trapped. I know that I have to stop, but I don't know how. And it feels like everything I liked about it will go away if I stop, and it feels uneven if I stop. This pattern follows me around. For years, I felt it in the things around me. In the score of a television show, in the sway of a crowded train going too fast, in the blinking of a light in the distance. When I get anxious, I tap on my clavicle. One, one, two, one, one, two, one, one, two, one, one, two, one, one, two. And I tap until I bruise the bone and it turns a mixture of my favorite shades of green and purple with speckled bits of blue. My doctor tells me I should stop. I can't remember how I stopped that night in the kitchen. I remember feeling between, calm and anxious, still and moving, present but not. I think it began with my two biggest toes on my right foot. I tell them to move and they don't. My body feels separate from my mind. I tell them to move and they don't. They don't move until they do, and then my body is awake, alert. Time has skipped from 9.21 and 9.22 to 11.43 and 11.43. I don't remember sitting there that long, and that makes me uncomfortable, but also feels strangely good. I wonder how it could be that no one walked through the kitchen, how no one noticed me sitting there. I don't know what to do, so I get up, and I walk over to the oven, and I look at the dip from the tapioca burn, and I feel good and bad and confused. I walk to my room and go to sleep. All right, so our next piece is from Emily Nickbar. Emily is a friend of ours that we've known for a while now. Yeah, we've uh, performed with her quite a bit, um, and she's one of our brunch buddies, uh, (laughs) which is just, she's super great at brunch. (laughs) Oh, brunch is like nobody's business. Yeah. Um, And she's bringing you a piece called Pink Grapefruit. I clean behind the radiator in the bathroom with the grapefruit scented cleaner. The liquid is pink and I watch as it turns gray when it mixes with the dust and the dirt collecting on the linoleum tile. I spray behind the toilet and clean the baseboards and under the bathtub. I pile up the paper towels I have turned into waste once I wipe and scrub all of the surfaces of the bathroom. A cloth towel is better because it is something I can clean in the washing machine, but then the germs from the bathroom will be on my clothes or other towels when I put them in the washer. The towels that I wrap my clean body in after a shower. Yes, the detergent will clean everything, but I don't trust that the bathroom germs won't transfer onto my underwear and then infect my body. So, I use paper towels and feel guilty that I am destroying precious trees to have a clean apartment. I switch from the pink grapefruit cleaner to bleach for the shower. 
The floral scented bleach burns my lungs when I spray it onto the bathtub and shower tiles, but I know the pain will be worth it to have a clean shower, a shower that won't be coated in germs that will make me dirty. I wish the moment when I am most clean, right when I have finished taking a shower. I wish that moment lasted longer. I cough from the burning sensation from the bleach in my lungs. My body is trying to detox. I sweep the hardwood floors and pick up all of the cat hair off from under the furniture. My furniture, in my apartment. The only germs are mine. The only dirty dishes are mine and only have my saliva on them. The only dead skin cells on the bathroom sink are mine. I am so disgusted by myself, I need another shower, but I worry that I will make the bathroom dirty again. I mop the floors twice so that I can be sure I didn't miss any spots and that I killed all of the germs I dragged in from the city streets. I don't want the germs from the outside to get on my feet and then into my bed. I don't want the germs in my bed to get into my hair or my face or in my eyes and my mouth when I sleep. I am proud when people notice how clean my apartment is, but they have ruined it by being over. Their shoes and backpacks bring bacteria into my home that will end up on my cat and then onto me. I will have to clean the floors again when they leave. I cook us a meal and as we are eating, I think about how hard I will have to work to clean the bacteria from their mouths off of my silverware so that I can eat with it later. When I do eat from my silverware again, I think about how it was last in my friend's mouth and I don't trust that it is really clean. I don't trust my silverware. I want to get a roommate to satisfy the loneliness of living alone, but I fear she won't be clean enough to live with me. I will have to clean her dishes and I will gag from the dirt in the sink and the smell of old food left over in the dishwasher when the steam vents out of it. I don't want to lose another friend because my phobias alienate her from me. I want to share groceries and meals and tell someone how my day was when I come home, but I fear that we are melding more than an address. The fear of another person's wet towel touching mine in the bathroom we would share keeps me from cohabitation. I want a man in my bed, but I worry the germs from his hands will infect my skin when he touches me. He would touch the railings on the CTA trains and buses on the way to my house, and he wouldn't wash his hands before touching my face and my body, and then the germs from the trains and the buses will be on me and make me dirty. The public gym I go to is the scariest place for me. The smell of soap scum in the locker rooms freaks me out, and I can't change into workout clothes at the gym. The other women, the normal women, they can change into their clothes with no hesitation. They don't fear that the germs from the tile floors will be trapped into their socks and then multiply in their shoes while they run on the treadmill. I do. The normal women can put their sneakers in their duffel bags next to their underwear and clean workout clothes and have it all touch. I cannot. I have to wrap my sneakers in plastic bags to keep all of the germs off my clothes and off of my skin. I work out next to the hot personal trainer I see a lot at the gym, and as he sweats, he smells better and better. I can smell his sweat and his pheromones, and he smells like sex. He smells like a man. He smells like dick. I notice his thighs showing from underneath his shorts and notice that they are the same pair of black shorts he wears every time I see him. I think about if that's the exact same pair he wears every day or if he owns multiple pairs. I think about how often he washes those shorts and if he stays in the same sweaty pair of underwear all day and if he smells so good because he is dirty. And then I think about how he would infect my mouth with the bacteria trapped in that sweat if I went down on him.
I want to know more about him. I want him to hold me so I can put my head on his chest and smell his good smell, but I fear what is living on his skin and inside his mouth. <laughs> I don't want to be this way. I want to let a friend try a sip of my drink without hesitation. I want to borrow a friend's chapstick and not have to clean it off first. I would love to be able to skip a shower some days. I wash my armpits with two different types of soap to kill any bacteria that would make me smell bad. I hate sweaty, dirty armpits and I worry people won't like me if I smell and men won't find me attractive. I recognize that these thoughts are not logical. I recognize that feeling dirty is not a real sensation. But I can't shake these feelings. I can't stray from routine. I can't go to bed on time if there are dirty dishes in the sink. I would love to have a weekend where I don't have to spend three hours cleaning my apartment. My hands crack from being washed so much. My cat compulsively cleans himself and he has a bald patch on his tummy from excessive grooming. While I love that Charlie Cat and I have this in common, I want to share a home with a partner. I want, to I want to invite a man's mess into my life and share my germs with him and let his dirt cover my house and my body. But I know that I'd rather sink deeper into loneliness as a sacrifice for a freshly bleached bathroom sink. All right, next up we have Billy Sullivan. Um, Billy is a super, super funny, uh, funny guy. He does sketch in Chicago and he uh, does a lot of like musical sketch and things like that. Um, yeah and sidebar he is like one of the friendliest people I've ever met. He's super nice uh, just like a lovely human to be around. Yeah. So we're super excited to bring you his piece Madness No Method. I'm a kid. Like most kids, I want stuff. Sure, I've got friends, I've got toys and things, but there's more stuff I want, like comic books, action figures, candy, quarters for the arcade. Stuff like that costs money. Like I mentioned, I'm a kid. How do I make this work? Sure, there are chores around the house, but the barrels only need to be brought out and in once a week. How much can that pay? I'm too young to run the lawnmower, so all I can do is rake. How is a kid like me going to make some money? Then I discovered it. It's like a vault. Well, actually, it's a shed, sort of. It's behind my grandpa's house. He lives across the street. My father shows it to me. It has bags and bags of empty bottles and cans. So? So what? He then tells me how by taking these bags, like Rumpelstiltskin with straw, I can turn these empties into cash. See, back then, we had this thing called a bottle bill. So every can and bottle had a price. All cans were a nickel, but a bottle could be either five or ten cents a piece. Sure, it sounds like just peanuts, but when these bags were full... So when Saturday came, I'd be ready. After my weekly dose of Super Friends and Eggo waffles, I was ready. I would lug the bags and put them in my dad's car. Then off we went to the Redemption Center, which was just an extension of the liquor store. I waited and watched the cans, the bottles being collected and counted. A nearby cash register beeped, and the receipt grew longer. 
Once it finished, it was handed to me to bring inside to the store. Once totaled, the cash was placed in my hands, anywhere from 3 to $10 sometimes. And I was set until I would do it all over again in about two weeks. Now, you can look at this in two ways. On the one hand, it was a quick, easy way to make some pocket money. On the other hand, maybe the awakening of an environmentalist. Something must have clicked, because not long after that, I was corralling any plastic bottle I could find in the house with the hopes of recycling them, only to realize that when the time came, they'd just be put in the week's trash. But my passion for Mother Earth didn't fade. I just did something different. My next act of eco-heroism came in the form of a double cassette. The Greenpeace Rainbow Warriors album. I mean, this counted, right? Still planet conscious. I mean, the proceeds went to Greenpeace itself, right? So it helped, didn't it? I mean, anything involving you 2 The Pretenders, World Party, and Terrence Trent Darby had to be a worthwhile cause, right? Still, it wasn't enough, so I upped the game a year later and planted trees on Earth Day's 20th birthday. So I helped, right? At least for that day. So here I am now, older and wiser, so to speak. But I must admit, I've been out of the planet-saving game for a while. Until now. See, I've started, with the help of my apartment building, the fight again. I'm making a difference. I'm doing it. I'm unstoppable. I'm reducing, reusing, and recycling like a boss. But you know something? There's one thing that these activists don't tell you. The one thing they leave out? The work. I mean, sure, I'm separating all my recyclables, but the specifics, I mean. Not all plastics can be taken. Plus, they need to be cleaned beforehand. I'm recycling my paper, too. Well, only if it's the right kind. If it's able to be torn and not contaminated with food. And don't even get me started on the cans. But I'm doing it. However, I've now got multiple bags of multiple items that will, once I gather enough of them, be taken down to our one recycling bin that's only emptied once a week. In the meantime, I've got a bag of aluminum cans, a bag of plastics, and one full of papers. So I basically have four personal landfills in my kitchen. But I'm making a difference. So now I've discovered the irony of it all, that the more we do to make a difference, the more work it entails. Now that's not a complaint, it's just an observation. Now this is something I should have known since those Saturday afternoons at the Redemption Center. Sure, my turning in the bottles was a twofold benefit doing my part for a little something in return. Buying the Greenpeace album. Doing my part for a worthy cause and getting some awesome music in return. But also getting inundated with mountains of junk mail from Greenpeace. Sure, it was printed on recycled, acid-free paper, but it was still ending up the trash in the, the same day. And now this. Separating my own garbage to be recycled. Cleaning out every empty plastic shampoo bottle or mayonnaise jar emptying every can of peas, beans, or olives, and making sure every piece of paper is dry and not contaminated with any foreign substance. Sure, it piles up, but I do it. And I will do it. Because I'm making a difference. Hey, Jen. Yeah? Do you ever notice that both of our pieces both end with us just going to sleep? Yeah. Uh, little happy coincidence there. Just a little clinky dink. <laughs> um, so 
There are a couple of pieces in this issue. Good transition, this right? Is solid. Um, <laughs> there are a couple pieces in this issue that are exclusively on scoutandbirdie.com. So you'll have to go to the website to read those pieces um, because they're not recorded. One of them is from our good friend Emily Matapusi Para. Who was in the first issue. Yeah, she did three poems for it. Um, And she has a great piece called Cafe Mysteries that you can check out. And if you're flipping through the mag online, it'll be next up in the mix. So um, it's really, really lovely. So you should definitely check it out. Um, But next up on the podcast, we're switching gears a little bit. Switching them. We've got some music coming for you. Um... This is a song that is inspired by a poem written by Lauren O'Connell, and it's been transformed uh, into a song by Carolyn Malloy, um, and she'll be playing the guitar and singing on this track. But first, we're going to hear from Lauren about what inspired the piece um, that's called Dark Deep Side. So I read astrology birth charts. Um, It's kind of like my favorite little hobby in my spare time. And a birth chart essentially is a blueprint of somebody's life. It's a really good look into many aspects of their life. But what I've found is everybody that I've read charts for really wants to know about their love life. Of course, we all do. We all want to be loved. Um, And so when looking for somebody's partner and what they're looking for in somebody you look at their seventh house but you also look at what is ruling that house what's sitting in that house etc so for this particular person they had a seventh house that was ruled by Sagittarius so then you look for where Jupiter is lying in their chart it was in the eighth house and so the eighth house is kind of that dark and twisty house it is the house of sudden ups and downs Um, it is the contracts of marriage, so seventh house would be your partner, but the eighth house is the actual marriage, so it's also divorces. Um, it's the death house. It's one of those like mystical, that's where astrology lives, so I dig the eighth house big time. Um, so it just, with somebody's Jupiter being in the eighth house representing their partner, to me it says they are going to find a partner that's going to be able to handle their sudden ups and downs very well. Because it's Jupiter and Jupiter is our guru, our teacher, makes us, you know, understand life on a higher level, they are also going to be able to teach them what they want, kind of in that sexual deep dark side as well. So that's kind of where this poem came out of. And I really love getting inspired by people's birth charts because it's just way more interesting than my personal love life. So um <laughs> It was just really fascinating, and it just kind of spews out of me when I look at somebody's chart. And Carolyn's adorable and turned it into a song. I just wanted to preface that she can totally write her own songs. She just was flattering me and turned mine into one. (laughs) And I love it. And here it is. Let's play a game Lift me up when I let you down I'll push you away to see if you'll come back around Let's explore the dark deep side Darling This is where our love will shine Darling 
up my ups, slide down my downs. I've let you see me, better be ready now. I'll pick a fight just to feel you inside. Teach me what my body wants. Take me for a ride. Let's explore the dark, deep side, darling. This is where our love will shine, darling. Climb my ups, slide down my downs. I bet you see me better be ready now. Climb up my ups, slide down my downs. I bet you see me better be ready now. Dare you to show me, show me your secrets. I'll show you mine. I'll show you mine. This is where our love will shine, darling. So I'm sure you're all just itching to know what comes next in Michael Lavalley's sexcapades. So we won't delay any longer. This is the second installment of When I Woke Up in Putney, a European sexcapade series, London. The great Stephen Sondheim once said, There's a hole in the world like a great black pit, and the vermin of the world inhabit it. It goes by the name of London. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I'm so glad that I chose London, England as the third stop of my Get My Shit Together boot camp in Europe trip. After my little drug threesome in Glasgow with my Scottish lover, Roddy, I take the train along the eastern coast of England and arrive in London on June 7th, 2016. When I walk out of King's Cross train station, I see the breathtaking views of a few random money exchange kiosks, an overly crowded Starbucks, and two McDonald's literally within two blocks of each other, all under a very dooming gray blanket of cloud that tells me, Michael, it's gonna rain, so you better choose something before Hurricane Queen Elizabeth shits on your face. It is in this moment that I realize Stephen Sondheim may have been right about this city. I walk into one of the McDonald's, order my number four McDouble with fries, medium combo with a Diet Coke, and post up in a corner to feast and figure out where I'm going to stay in the city. London was one of the cities that had very expensive hostels and Airbnbs, so I resorted to a site called Couchsurf.com, where people offer their couch or their spare room to travelers for free or on a trade basis. A German girl named Julia, looks like Julia, but pronounced Julia, she's from Germany and has been living in London for three months on an internship, approves my request to stay with her, but says she works until 6 p.m. So that's like 1600 military time, right? So I got it, I can entertain myself until then. The rain had settled as I exit the McDonald's, headed toward Waterloo Station where Julia works. I look around me, taking in my soppy surroundings, as a red double-decker bus passes by and everything feels so... English, and I love it. Until it starts pouring rain again. I put the hood of my measly rain jacket over my head and act like it's not a big deal. Then it starts to get harder and harder and louder and a crack of thunder and a flash of lightning and I realize that this is not chill. As everyone around me scrambles to get to shelter, I enter a red telephone booth and wait for the rain to calm. A telephone booth. 
How London of me. When I realize the rain does not subside, I just fuck it all and accept a wet defeat. Since I have some hours to kill, I find touristy things to do. I walk to the Parliament building, which ends up being covered in a massive white tarp because of construction. Big Ben, it's a clock. The London Eye, it's a Ferris wheel, how groundbreaking. And I make it to Yulia's work a little before 1600. She's not here. I quickly realize my mistake. 1600 is 4 p.m., not 6 p.m. I was still getting used to 24-hour time, so I end up having to wait two more hours for her in the lobby. 1800, or 6 p.m., rolls around, and I meet Yulia. She's about 5'4", fucking adorable little face, wears a tan rain jacket over a white tee, gray jeans, and black flats. She has a very calming, tomboy type of energy, which I like because I didn't want it to feel weird for me to stay with her. She seems very easygoing and also a little lesbianish. Love it. After a short ride on the train, we arrive at her apartment, which is basically a hallway with an 8x8 room at the end, a tiny alleyway kitchen to the right, a bathroom up a steep staircase, as well as two more small bedrooms. In Yulia's room, she has a bed, a side table, a closet, and an air mattress propped up on the wall for me. My home for the next week. After settling in, showering, and changing clothes, we eat a quick rice and chicken dinner I make, and Yulia decides she wants to show me a good time in the gay neighborhoods of London on my first night. So we head over to a neighborhood called Soho around 10 p.m. We walk into a bar we choose at random. It's called G-A-Y, which is laughable. We get drinks, a vodka Sprite for Yulia, double vodka on the rocks for me with three lemons, which I've never gotten before, so I don't know where the hell that comes from. The inside of the bar has cement floors, cement walls, and is lit up with the colors of the rainbow. It was definitely gay. We go upstairs to check out the dance floor, and Yulia wants a cigarette, so we find a, sm a smoking room in the back that is packed with people. I notice a guy eyeing me a few steps over in the room. He's bald with a slight handlebar mustache and a good set of teeth. Potential suitor. His friend beside him notices me, too. He has a great set of hair and a not-so-great set of teeth, but we'll see where the night takes us. They come over to us and start chatting. I flirt with both of them a little, smiling at practically everything they say, trying to hide the fact that I virtually have no game. I talk about the fact that I'm from America, which the boys both love. I'm pretty sure they both grab my arm at the same time, squeezing my biceps in excitement that I'm a foreigner and also trying to feel me up. They invite us to another bar down the street and around the corner. Yulia and I go to the bathroom, go back to the smoking area, and the boys are nowhere to be found. They left us. Freaking out, we search the whole bar for them, outside the bar, then down the street, then around the block, then try and remember the directions they gave us, but down the street and around the corner can literally be anywhere. We missed what could have been the best night of our lives, and my FOMO, fear of missing out, is through the roof, and by this point I'm terribly sober. Yulia, however, is fucked up to no extent, and I decide it's probably time for us to go home. As we're walking down the street toward the train, she gets another craving for a cigarette but can't find her lighter. We walk up to a random man and woman leaning against the outside entrance of a dingy bar to ask them for one. As I lock eyes with the man handing us a lighter, I immediately know that I'm going to go home with him. He was cute, basic dark features, thick hair and a pompadour wearing a leather jacket or something all black. Hey, how's your night? I say. Oh, fine. We're both sober right now, which sucks. He says back. Yeah, same. I was really hoping to go home with someone tonight. I'm from America, and this is my first night in London. Oh my god, you were looking to hook up with someone tonight too, his friend says, hitting him against the chest. 
Oh, were you, I say, locking eyes with him again. I step back, check out his body. I'm down, I say. With a chuckle, he says, oh, and how do you know I want to? Oh, well, you don't. But I'm just saying, we're here, sober, we both want to fuck, so why not? He smiles and laughs, kind of embarrassed, and says, Okay, I guess. But you should check on your friend over there. I look back, and Yulia, this bitch, is already getting in a cab by herself. After living here for three months, she doesn't even know her address. So I grab the new man and hop into the cab. After dropping Yulia off, new boy and I go to his apartment in a neighborhood called Putney. The whole cab ride there, he keeps asking himself what he's doing. I ask him what's wrong, and he tells me he hates Americans because their accents are so annoying, and they're so dumb, and all this ridiculous bullshit that makes me believe he thinks every American is a Kardashian. Then why the fuck did you get into this cab with me if you hate Americans so much? I ask him. He responds by grabbing my hand, shoving it into his crotch, and rubbing himself all over his pants while leaning over to make out with me. I pull back. So you're gonna tell me how much you hate Americans and that we're basically useless and then just eat my face. You're a fucking mess, dude, I say to him. Well, I'm drunk, he says, news to me because I thought that we were both stone cold sober. We get to his apartment, pay for the cab, which ends up being like 115 pounds, which is absurd, and go up to his room. He takes off my clothes, kisses my body, and we fuck. After we finish, he tells me that he just got out of a four-year relationship a couple months ago. Fuck. What did I just do? We wash off the cum, drink some water, chat a little bit more about our lives, and then fuck again an hour later. It was good sex. This time, though, in a thrust of passion, he leans over my body and whispers in my ear, Don't leave. Stay with me. I don't say anything. We both finish, wash up, and as he's sitting on the bed with me standing between his legs, he says again, looking up at me, Stay here. I don't want you to go. Joe? His name is Joe, by the way. It took me a long time to even figure that out. Joe? Don't. He frowns, shrugs it off, not wanting to accept my answer, and pulls me onto the bed with him. Lying on our sides, our torsos inches away from each other, lacing our fingers over our hips, we stare into each other's eyes. He's probably thinking how much he loves me and enjoys my company and doesn't want me to leave. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, Michael, this dude is a fucking mess. He just got out of a serious relationship. He hates Americans. You're completely sober. He's not. We've already fucked twice, and I'm still trying to figure out if that means I'm taking advantage of him or not. What are you doing? Then I notice he starts snoring, and I thank the Lord he falls asleep. I wake up the next morning, turn over, and look at Joe. This poor, lost broken-hearted soul and realized that I should go. Unsure where to go from here in all aspects, directionally, emotionally, I take a shower, use his beard trimmer without asking, and make a game plan to leave. I go back into his room as I'm drying off to find him awake sitting up in bed. Want to get breakfast? He asks me, as if nothing happened. I stare at him a little longer, wondering if he knows everything he said last night. Sure, I say, shrugging it all off. He takes me to his favorite diner down the street, buys us both coffee and a standard English breakfast of eggs, baked beans, bacon, sausage, and other random English meats. He tells me what a great time he had last night. I guess he does remember. Shortly after breakfast, he walks me to the nearest train station, hugs me, kisses me on the cheek, wishes me luck on my trip, and watches the train as it leaves his side.
So last up on the podcast is Abigail Phelps. So we know Abigail from, or Abby, we know from school. And Abby and I were really close friends in school. And now we perform together pretty regularly, yeah. all of us. All of us. Um, she is just a super, super beautiful writer and a super, super beautiful human being. All together. Um, and all together just beautiful. Um, <laughs> so we're really, really happy to have her piece on this. And her piece is 658 Recurrences. You graduated college with a BA in acting and a minor in art history exactly 658 days ago. You've been walking dogs for a living for 649. A list of things you've had to take out of your clients' mouths with your bare hands. Mulch, Sticks, a piece of bike tire, a scrap of caution tape, a dead bird, the wing of a dead bird, a buffalo wing outside of Hooters, their own poop, their siblings' poop, dried poop from dogs long gone, saran wrap, snow-capped chocolate nonpareils, a half-eaten Subway sandwich they dug out of the trash, and an entire packet of fun dip, candy stick included. It's this last one that makes you reconsider who's really at fault here, the dog or yourself, and if you care. <laughs> and that dreaded feeling of having wasted 649 days. And if you're any closer at finding yourself while picking up shit, or if you're any closer at letting go of the anger you still hold on to for inevitably growing older. You've had this reoccurring dream since last December, and you debate whether to call it a dream or a nightmare. No monsters popping out of closets, no brutal murders, not even the sense of flying. Nothing really happens. And that may be the most nightmarish part about it, in it, you're giving a tour of a house, a mansion. You believe it's yours. Every night, the tourists change, but they're usually professors you've looked up to, or ex-boyfriends, ex-hookups, ex-somethings. There are only three sections of the house you distinctly remember when you wake up. The first is the attic, with peeling, powder-blue wallpaper and gold light beaming through a round window to your right. To your left, hundreds of stored portraitures hanging so close together you mistake them for wood paneling at first. You take a couple of the portraits down and realize they're all paintings of you. High-collared, wearing, regal you. You step through the slit you created by removing the paintings and discover that behind there are shelves and shelves of all the things you used to drop down the air vent in your childhood home. Pennies and bobby pins, paper clips and plastic doll shoes, Cheerios, and the occasional crayon designated too ugly a color to need. Shelves of all the Barbie clothes you used to design out of Kleenex, carefully placed in glass display cases. Absolutely no dust. Someone is taking care of these shelves. And each time you reach for an item in the dream, the hair on your arms pricks up, and you turn back to your tour and say, we should leave now. They're getting angry, but don't worry. The memories, they won't hurt you. In two years, you've deleted Tinder seven times and reinstalled it six. You've slept with two more people than the year before, and then two after that. One of which sexed you from Prague for a month and doesn't take into account different time zones, or simply doesn't care. And there you are, noon, broad daylight, typing, uh-huh, and then what are you going to do to me? A shame that the Yorkie you're currently walking somehow knows and is disappointed in your lack of imagination. It's this prog sexter who later calls you a frigid bitch, to which you think, ooh, game on. You write a poem about him, 
an excerpt from said poem. You talk at me about all the concerts you've afforded, about comic books, Marvel, not DC, right? I get up, open my closet door, and it sticks from the humid summer night. You ask me if I know why wood warps like that. I do. You explain anyway. Pig fuck. End quote. You somewhat enjoy the title of Frigid Bitch? Take the insult and turn it into your power. That is, until a month later, you hear that he was still with his girlfriend when you hooked up. He has turned you into something you never thought, never wanted to be. He has destroyed the part of you that knew you weren't, in fact, a frigid bitch. Back in the dream, the second room you can remember is the library, a circular room, three levels, floor-to-ceiling books, dark woods, velvet chairs, roaring fireplace, heaven. You take two steps into the room, and immediately burst into tears and tell the group there's a boy that lives behind the books. He's dangerous. You can't enjoy this room. He will kill you if you stay. Since graduation, your eating disorder comes back and you learn that some things can never be labeled as back because they never left. Always sitting on a small wooden stool in the corner, twiddling its thumbs. And you message your father. It would be really great if you could make it up soon. I've been going through a really rough period, and it'd be nice to talk to you about it in person. He responds two weeks later with, Your mom just let me know you're losing your insurance. I have an email into a friend. The final space in the dream is not a room, but a balcony. You've seen now that the outside world is stark, futuristic, contained as if you're in a snow globe. The balcony floor is a moving treadmill. You are moving closer and closer to the black edge, the ledge, and it is revealed that the treadmill cascades over. It is a rubber waterfall. In a panic, you turn and try to run back to the house. You do not make it. The last sight you see is the outline of your father, backlit, safe in the house with the professor. The X, the somethings you thought had followed you onto the balcony, they did not. You wake up. You lie in bed many nights as the memory of dangling one foot off the Loyola platform resurfaces, inflates, and settles at the top of your spine. The spot some have held to show their dominance. The spot some have kissed to show their tenderness. The spot you always forget is a part of you. Your foot hovering over the blue line just to see what it looks like. Just to see what it feels like. You feel like nothing really happens in the dream. You feel like nothing has really happened this year. Or the last. Thoughts that loop in your mind. You graduated exactly 658 days ago. A year. And another year. Two years. You are 24. And 24 is young. And 24 is too early to fall into any existential abyss. And 24 is good. You are good. You will wake up and you will be good. All right, that's it for our podcast. But that's not it for the issue. Go on to scoutandbirdie.com. And check out our really amazing friend, Jorge Silva. He has created this really lovely video called Oblivious, um, and it, it is definitely worth logging on to the internet and going to check it out. Um, and then 
If you're interested in submitting for Scout and Birdie, make sure to go onto our website and check out the submissions tab where there'll be all the info that you need to submit a submission. Yeah. Um, and until then, uh, you can look forward to our next issue, which is Roots. And that'll be coming out on May 1st. So make sure to tune in then. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.